Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or you had ever formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord. How long have pity on your servants? Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Jonah. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Yep, my name is Tori, one of the pastors at Terra Troy. And we wanted to again welcome you from Toga, Nama. Thanks for making the trip and joining us this morning. If you're visiting, welcome. We are three churches, but in reality is we're, we're also one church. Um, and so we welcome you here this morning. I would like to pray, because I'm getting the nudge to do that. Lord, our eyes are closed. Our focus is on you, the one who is truly leading us, the one who can truly change us, the one who can truly satisfy us. You are God. We look to you this morning, Lord. Make your heart reach ours this morning. May your word impact our head, our heart, our hands. Change us, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So, usually in the terror churches, we're going through a book of the Bible. We have a book, and we go from chapter to chapter, from verse to verse, and it's easy to know what you're going to get the next week because it's the next verses in that book. In the summer, frequently, we like to do what we call summer in the Psalms. And it's liberating in one sense to try to, to think about, I can choose any psalm that I want to. There's 150 options. And yet, in another sense, which one do you choose? It can be a little bit overwhelming. Which one do you do? And so I just simply want to let you know, in thinking about it and praying about it, what psalm are we going to look at this morning? And looking at some of the different psalms, I read through Psalm 90 and I thought, what impact could it make if our churches, if every person in this room truly took Psalm 90 
to heart. And it was really that simple. And so we're going to look at Psalm 90. The background is given to us in what's called the superscription. Before verse 1, it says, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. This is the only psalm that's attributed to Moses, which means it is very likely the oldest psalm in the Psalter. And the oldest psalm in the Psalter is identifying one of the oldest questions of humanity. How can we make an impact in our short lives? Moses wrote this psalm likely toward the end of his life. Toward the end of his life as he's watching Israelite after Israelite die off in the wilderness before that next generation was permitted to go in. He's watching the Israelites drop like flies. And you can imagine this psalm welling up in his heart until he cries out to God about it. Lord, help our short lives make an impact. Let them matter. Here's the main idea of Psalm 90. Let's cry out to our eternal God that our finite lives will make an impact. Let's cry out to our eternal God that our finite lives will make an impact. Moses did, and we can as well. The direction for the message today is going to be the same direction that the psalm seems to go. It starts with an affirmation in verses 1 through 4, an affirmation of our eternal God. And it turns from affirming the eternality of God to our finiteness. One of the hymns says something like, you are eternal, we are but a moment. It's a lament about our finite lives. And then it transitions at the end to a request, a pleading to God. Let our finite lives, our short lives, make an impact, verses 12 through 17. That's the direction of the psalm. That's the direction we're going to be going this morning. First, our eternal God. It's affirming. Moses is affirming who he's talking to. The true God is the God of eternity. And we see that in verses 1 through 4. Let's be reminded about what it says. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Moses is affirming God, the true God, is the God of eternity, from everlasting to to everlasting. He exists outside of time, outside of space, outside of matter. Before any place, before any time, before anything, there is and always will be God. He created everything we see in Genesis 1 at once. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, time. God created the heavens Space and the earth matter. Have you thought about it this way? Our one God, who has always existed in three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, our triune God, in a moment, it reveals to us in Genesis 1-1, our triune God created a trinity of trinities. What do I mean by that? He created space and time and matter. Space is composed of height, width, and depth. Time is composed of past, present, 
and future. Matter is composed of solid, liquid, and gas. And in a moment, our triune God created all of that. And he's outside of each one of those, not restrained by any of it. He's the creator. That's why Moses can say to God, a thousand years are like yesterday. To God, a thousand years are like a few hours in the night. To us, a thousand years might as well be forever, right? There's a quote from Charles Spurgeon in The Treasury of David. He said, a thousand years is a long stretch of time. How much may be crowded into it? The rise and fall of empires, the glory and obliteration of dynasties, the beginning and the end of elaborate systems of human philosophies, and countless events, all important to household and individual, which eludes the pens of historians, yet to the Lord is nothing. What must he be to whom all of this is nothing? What must he be to whom all of this is nothing? Psalm 90 is quoted in the New Testament. Peter quotes that verse, to God a thousand years, like yesterday. In 2 Peter chapter 3, he says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Why did Peter bring up Psalm 90 in addressing the church in, Psalm 9, in, in 2 Peter chapter 3? What was the context? I'll tell you real briefly. Why did Peter think of, of Psalm 90 in this verse? The context was, before anybody has ever said, haters are going to hate, before anyone has ever said that, Peter said, scoffers are going to scoff. <laughs> Mockers are going to mock. What were they mock? What were they scoffing? They were scoffing at the idea that God is the judge of the world, that God is going to hold every single person accountable. You see, Peter reminds us of a preview of God's judgment, of his wrath against evil when he, when he reminds us of the flood, when he reminds us of the water. And Peter tells the church a word just as applicable today. He tells us that that judgment of God is going to come at the end when Christ returns, not with water, but with fire, when he makes all things new and he judges the world and he judges all evil, when he judges the wicked. And Peter said, People are going to make fun of that. Scoffers are going to scoff. Because maybe you're thinking, when even you hear that, you hear the idea of Christ is going to return and judge the world. I've thought this before, maybe you have. That was spoken so long ago. It's thousands of years ago that even, that even Peter said that. It's funny we say that or that we think that because it's exactly what 2 Peter 3 said we would think and say. Didn't our, our parents have talked about that and our grandparents and their great-grandparents and the last generation? People have been talking about that for so long and it never seems to happen. It's exactly what he said we would think and say. But what is his response to that? His response is, remember who God is? To him, a thousand years is like a couple hours last night. Why has he not judged the world yet? He tells us in 2 Peter 3, because of the patience of God not wanting anyone to perish in their sin, 
not wanting anyone to face the wrath of God for their wickedness, but instead to repent, to turn from their sins and believe in Jesus, the one who rescues us from the wrath to come. That's why he says it hasn't happened yet. He's still adding to the family of God. Wow. The God of eternity. He wants us to know him. For God, the timeless one, time is no constraint. But it is a constraint to us, isn't it? For God, he's the one that gives life but also takes it. And we have a certain amount of days before he takes it. Verse 3 says, he returns man to dust and says, return, O children of man. That sounds a little scary, doesn't it, when you hear that? God, the God of eternity, outside of time, determines our days, takes our life. We have a certain amount of time on this planet before we die. It sounds a bit scary. It sounds a bit like, does he care? Is he distant? How did Moses have courage in knowing this God, in approaching this God of eternity? It's the same reason we do today. Verse 1, he says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place, our home, our refuge. Moses had been in the wilderness 40 years. They had, according to Numbers 33, 42 different locations where they would stop and camp before God led them somewhere else, none of which was their permanent home. And yet Moses is saying, throughout all generations, throughout my life, every chapter of it, every place I've lived, everywhere I've gone, You are my home. You are my dwelling place. You are my refuge. Can we not say the same thing about our God? And I would argue we can say it with an even greater confidence of knowing what happened. Because Moses said in Deuteronomy 33, the eternal God is your dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. But Moses didn't know what we know now. Those everlasting arms would willingly enter into time and space and matter. Those everlasting arms, the arms of God, in the God-man Jesus Christ came for us, dwelt with us, lived here as one of us, not in a superhero suit, not with body, body armor, but with flesh and blood, and those arms were stretched out on the cross, dying for us and welcoming us into the family of God. What kind of courage What kind of confidence can we have in approaching our eternal God, who we know is not distant and uncaring, but is preparing a place for us? As Jesus said in John 14, we can abide with him now, and we know he's going to prepare a place for us. He is our home. This is our eternal God, who we can cry out to. Moses cried out. And we can cry out. About what? About our finite lives. Verses 5 through 11. In verses 5 through 11, we see a lament about our finite lives. Lamenting about two things. First of all, that our lives are short, filled with struggle. And secondly, that they end specifically because of sin. We can lament because our lives are short, filled with struggle, and because they end. Why do they end? Because of sin. So first... He laments that our lives are short, filled with struggle. That's verses 5 through 6 and verse 10. Look at verses 5 through 6, then verse 10. You sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. Verse 10. The years of our life are 70, 
or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Life is short. He says here it's like a flood, a flood that covers and sweeps everything away in its path. The Lord will sweep every single life into eternity. It's short. It's like a dream. Have you ever had a dream that when you wake up, you think to yourself, it feels like I've been asleep for a month. (laughs) That was such a long dream. But before you know it, you're awake. He relates our life to like grass, grass that is sown and then grown and then blown and then mown and then gone. Here today, gone tomorrow. Our life is short. At the time Moses wrote this, he noticed the Israelites were dying somewhere between 70 to 80 years old. Today, the average life of someone in the U.S. is 76 years old. For males, it's 73. For females, it's 79. Of course, they had to beat us. That's fine. It's short either way. Life is fast. Maybe at times it feels slow. School felt slow at times. (laughs) Suffering makes life go slowly at times. But in general, and as the years go on, you wonder who is hitting the fast forward button. Life is short. Have you ever wondered... Have you ever thought about it this way? Maybe life feels so short to us because we're made for eternity. Maybe time feels so foreign to us. It it goes so fast because we're made to live forever. We are. Eternal life or eternal destruction if we are in Christ or not. Life is fast. He also says life is a struggle. It's short, but it's hard, isn't it? Yet their span is but toil and trouble. I remember a number of things my dad said to me growing up. One of them, which he would usually say right before he did something he didn't want to do, he would say, son, you're going to have to do a lot of things in life that you don't want to do. Simple. But it's true. We have to do a lot of stuff in life we simply don't want to do. It's filled with toil and trouble. Both the daily challenges... Alarm clock can be the worst part of the day, can it not? (laughs) Just getting up in the morning. Or the people in our life that can discourage us and be challenging. Or the parts of our job that we just don't want to do, toil and, and struggle. Or the bigger crises that happen throughout our lives. He knows every single one of those. I learned lately an average family will have a crisis about every six months. It's a lot. Life is filled with toil and with trouble. And then Moses says... After our short life, filled with struggle, and then we die. That sounds a little grim, but stay with me. It's going to get a bit more grim, but stay with me. (laughs) Yep. So he's crying out as we can, lamenting about our short lives, filled with struggle, and then they end because of sin. Verses 7 through 9 and verse 11. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. And verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Moses is saying, we die not because that's just how it is, 
but because of sin, because of rebelling against God, because of defining good and evil the way we feel like it, because of what we say or don't say or do or what we don't do, that's against God and his ways. That's why we die. The wages of sin, as in what sin deserves, what sin earns for us, is death. Physical death, spiritual death, death. We could talk about some of the main causes of death. The top three causes of death in the U.S. are heart disease, cancer, and accidents. I think in accidents, it's probably mostly car accidents. One of the most dangerous things we do day to day is driving. I'm going to go on a slight rant. Forgive me for this. If you drive and you text, stop it. Seriously, stop. My wife gets mad at me when I've done that a couple times, as she should, very mad. It's disregarding the value of my own life and the value of the lives around me. Too many people die because of unnecessary car accidents in that way. Outside of rant for a second. (laughs) We could talk about the reasons people die. We could talk about the top reasons people die. But what Moses is saying, what scripture reveals to us, is the root cause of every death, no matter what the reason seems to be. Moses attended countless funerals in the wilderness knowing that the root cause of every one of those was sin. We are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath, because of our iniquities, because of our secret sins. I'm going to hone in on that secret part for a little bit. We die because of our sins, the ones people can see, the ones people can't see, the ones behind closed doors, the ones you keep close to your chest, the ones that are behind the closed doors of your minds, your thoughts, your thought life, when we consistently have sinful thoughts that we dwell on about ourselves, about others, about God the thoughts that we think we can keep hidden from the stage of the world and from everyone else, the thoughts that we tend to judge less severely because we believe the lie that somehow they'll never be brought to light or that God somehow cares less about our thought life than what we do and what we say. All right. A couple weeks ago I talked about some personal struggles I've had over my life. And I want to say it again. When we talk about struggles in our life, we love to talk past tense because it's all issues I used to have. And look, I got it all together now. We got to be realistic. We have to be honest. So when I talked a couple weeks ago about a consistent sin struggle that I had and still at times deal with, God is working on me, was the thought process of self-glory through performance, specifically through a sport, through baseball, where shared the whole story of how that started, but consistently, I know it became an idol in my heart, pursuing a sport is not wrong in itself, but when it becomes a disordered affection, when it takes the center stage in your heart, your life, your mind, your thoughts, it's an idol, it's a problem. And I remember thinking, and still at times do catch myself or have a dream of just thinking about the glory of Tory pitching or hitting or doing whatever on the baseball field to the point where it's idolatry. And that's not the only way. It's not the only secret or hidden kind of struggle that I have. James says we all stumble in many ways. That's all of us. 
What are, the, what, are, what are we keeping? What are we hiding from one another? Something else I've struggled with that I know it started at a young age was the glory of self-appearance. I think it started, I think, when I was young and I saw a movie with a guy that was just ripped, six-pack abs, and I remember making a kind of secret vow to myself, I'm going to look like that. And listen, the amount of time spent thinking about that, wanting that, pursuing that, I'm embarrassed. The amount of time wasted. Again, like I got to point out, wanting to be healthy, wanting to exercise, take care of yourself, that's good. But when it takes a center stage, when it takes, when does it become an idol in our heart and our mind? I know it has been and can be. For me, it took God taking away the ability for me to exercise for two years at a pivotal time in my life to really hone in and work on that in here and in here. I know, without a shadow of a doubt, the people that I respect and who I look up to has nothing to do with if they have six-pack abs or not. There is no tombstone that will say, this guy had six-pack abs. Who cares? And yet, I needed and at times still need God still working on me to care about what really matters, to have the mirror of God's word reveal to me the glory and the beauty and the majesty and the wonder of Jesus so I can pursue him and not care as much about the glory of the physical mirror. We need him and the power of God working in us to replace our idols with the true God. And we need not just him, we need each other. We need each other. Do, we have, do you have people in your life that you are honest with? And I mean honest with. This isn't the place on a Sunday to get up and share your deepest, darkest, everything in front of everybody. But are there people in your life that you're walking alongside that know you? Sometimes it takes one person to be the one to open those floodgates. Even if no one else is doing it. Even if you're frustrated at your small group. Why is no one else being honest? You can be honest. No matter what it is. Because listen, don't believe the lie that it will remain hidden always. And don't believe the lie that somehow God doesn't really care about it. That you're the exception. God cares about everybody else and what they do and what their thought life is like, their hidden sins, but he doesn't care about mine. That's a lie too. The truth is God knows. Your conscience knows. God knows. And remember what the word says. Jesus says in Luke chapter 8, there is nothing hidden that will not be made manifest. There is nothing secret that will not be made known and brought into the light. So don't wait. Remember Hebrews 4? I love to be able to say, we're all going through Hebrews. When we get back in September, we'll be back in Hebrews. Remember back in Hebrews 4? The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to the point of division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, 
but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So don't wait. Come into the light. There's such freedom to be honest. Have people, have believers in your life that you are honest with. And let God, let Christ be the motive to do that. Let him give you the courage, the motivation to do that. Think less about how people might respond to you and more about the fact that Jesus knows, Jesus forgives. And maybe give the the body of Christ the chance to be just that, the body of Christ that can listen to you, hear you, know you, and speak to you the truth of the gospel, that you are his, that you are forgiven. If it's the first time you've shared it and come into the light, or the hundredth or the hundred thousandth time, come into the light. Don't believe the lie that it will remain hidden. And then the second lie I want to mention, he tells us in verse 11, don't believe the lie that it doesn't matter to God. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? What is he saying there? He's saying, who considers, who rightly considers the power of God's just, holy, powerful wrath and hatred against all of our sins? Who rightly perceives that? My answer to that question is nobody. Nobody does. Do our sins matter to him? We're going we're gonna to find out just the extent that they do. Because how do we not fully see the wrath of God against our sins? Because one of the songs we just sang, I'm going to botch it, but something like, what I've earned is not what I deserve. Something like that, right? No, I botched it. Okay. Some, we don't, he doesn't, let me give you a Bible verse. He doesn't treat us stay in my lane. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. Does he? No. None of us have seen what our sins really deserve. Has anyone seen hell? Have you seen the unquenchable fire of the wrath of God where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth and eternal conscious torment? I haven't. So I can't yet rightly consider the power of God's wrath against my sin. The ones you see and the ones you don't see. We have to sit in that. But also, who can rightly consider the powerful love of Jesus who took that unquenchable wrath of God for my sins and your sins and the sins not just of a thousand years, but for all time of every person who's committed these sins against God? Who rightly considers the love of Jesus? Nobody. Embrace that and come into the light. We cry out to our eternal God about our finite lives that are short, filled with struggle, that end because of our sins against God, that end in death. And we request, we plead, like Moses did, that our lives would make an impact. That's verses 12 through 17. In verses 12 through 17, Though Moses knows he doesn't deserve anything but death, though we know we don't deserve anything but death, we can cry out, as he did, for wisdom, wisdom to live well. We can cry out for the Lord's merciful presence, for our dark days to be overshadowed by joyful days, to be matched by joyful days, 
and to leave an impact, not just for ourselves and now, but he says for our children, for the next generation. Verses 12 through 17, look at his request. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is his request. In light of our short lives, in light of the God of eternity, he asks, Lord, let us make an impact with our short life here. Because the truth is we all have limited time, a bag of days that we can't add a single second to. Time is the most valuable resource because it's the most limited, and you can't add to it. We could get the smartest people around the whole world and have an add to time conference, and they would fail, because <laughs> you can't. So the question is, how do we use it well? If you want to use something well, here's my suggestion. Read the instructions, go to the manufacturer to find out how to use it well. So we're talking about how to use our time well. Who's the manufacturer of time? The timeless one is. God is. If we want to make an impact, it has to be through the one who made it. He's the one that determines our impact. Let me pause for a second. If you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, you don't believe in God, but you've been surprised how this psalm, how the word of God so acutely puts its finger on the human condition. And you're realizing, okay, maybe there's something to this. <laughs> and, in order, and you want to make an impact with your life. You know that you do. And you're learning that it's God that determines our impact. I would just encourage you, keep pursuing, keep asking questions, keep engaging with the word. God's not afraid of your questions. We might not have all the answers if you ask followers of Christ, you ask people about it. We're wrestling as well. That's what people of God do. They wrestle with God. We're just, come on in, get in the ring, wrestle with us. If you're here and you are a follower of Christ, and that's most of us, and you want to make an impact with our short lives, what do we do? We could have a message for the end of time of how to apply and how to do that well. But let's just look at some of these verses. Verse 14, he says, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. I think a good way to start every day is reminding yourself and talking to God about the fact that he's the one that satisfies us. He's the, one, he's the love we've been looking for our whole life. Just start every day. I like Psalm 143, verse 8, that gets at this idea. It says, Cause me to hear your steadfast love in the morning, for I trust in you. Cause me to know the way in which I should walk, for I lift up my soul to you. It's acknowledging our satisfaction is found in God. Every day, every day ask him to lead you. Ask him to remind you of that. Just a daily decision that we can make every morning. But then there's also very practical decisions we can make, aren't there? And maybe some of you are, are thinking, please give me very specific guidelines in my life, in my context of what I need to do to make an impact in my, in my short life for God. But the truth is, I can't do that for everybody here. There's no way. And that leaves no room for your relationship with God and your faith for, to follow him and for him to show you and reveal to you what your life should look like. But what I can do is share a couple examples in my own walk, in my own journey, 
and a couple recent examples of some decisions I've made as this psalm really has impacted me to want to make an impact myself. So here's a couple decisions I've made recently. First of all, I found myself very routinely, automatically, with some t- when I do get some time off and just relax, automatically just put on the next TV episode. Anyone else? Just automatic. Don't even think about it that much. Oh, I can finally relax. Boom. So I decided, with the conviction of my wife slash the Holy Spirit, to make a decision. <laughs> There's certain days of the week, no TV. There's certain days of the week, limited TV. And that has caused me to not just automatic, automatically live and do, and, but, make, but think about what else can I do with this time? What could be more restful for me or helpful for me or encouraging for somebody else? The last two weeks, it's been, it's been life-giving, thankful. Second one, second decision I made recently. I have a journal that at the end of every day, I want to write at least one example of where I've seen God that day, God sighting. I asked God at the beginning of this about two weeks ago, Lord, let there be at least one every day where I've seen what you're doing. It's so often in the lives of other people around me. And since then, two weeks, there's been not one multiple every day of something God is up to. And that has been very life-giving for me as well. What is it for you? What are some changes you can make? Not, not to be, this is not legalism. This is simply wanting to make an impact out of our relationship with God, from the love of God, what can we do? How can we leave an impact with our short lives? What does it look like in your life? It might require sacrifice. It might require making decisions that are difficult at first, but can I remind you again this morning? He is worth it. He is worth any struggle, any sacrifice. He's worth the time. He's worth being generous. He's worth being patient with those around us, being patient with our children to better reflect the love of Jesus. He's worth my best efforts of sharing him with those around me in my spheres of influence. He's worth being uncomfortable and sharing my struggles with believers that I'm walking through life with. He's worth it. He's worth every second in his word to get that word in my mind so it affects my heart and my hands and my vocal cords and my feet and changes me. He's worth it. Every effort, all of it. You know, there's, there's so much for us to learn. Is that your heart posture this morning, really? There's so much for us to learn. There are 431 commands in the New Testament. 431 commands. We can't know all of those commands, probably not, off the top of our head, and certainly can't live all of those out. But thanks be to God that through Jesus Christ, he lived the perfect life, gives it to us, and enables us to be the kinds of people he calls us to be, to live the kinds of lifestyle that he's called us to live, to know him and to reflect him. He's worth it. He's worth it all. He's worth the struggle. In verse 15, he says, Make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Moses didn't know, first of all, that we wouldn't always be called servants, but we'd be called sons and daughters of the king. And Moses didn't know that God wasn't just going to match every evil or suffering day with joyful days. He was going to give us infinitely more through Jesus and the life to come. When we live with that kind of hope, when we live with Jesus at the center, we're going to make an impact. We will. 
I'm going to close with a poem that I wrote on Psalm 90. I think one of the deepest ways that some people can express themselves is through, is through poetry, and I've found that to be true in my own life. The Psalms are filled with them. Here's my poem based on Psalm 90 to close this out. If a thousand years are but yesterday in your eyes, what are 33? Through my eyes, both quick and slow, what do you see? My past to you is clear. You are alive there as much as here. For me, the video's blurry, a flood and flurry of mixed memories with ups, downs, monotony, a fear of knowing exactly how much time wasted. You alone make my life count. Kick me into gear, teach me to fear. Help me believe not one, but every tear will be matched with infinite joyful years. Come near, come back. Make all things new, make all things clear. May our home once again be with the timeless one here. We cry out to our eternal God about our finite lives wanting to make an impact. And we can do that. How did Moses do it? He did it through prayer. That's what this psalm is, a prayer from Moses, the man of God. We're going to have prayer available in what we like to call the holy corner over here after the service. Let's be people of prayer that cry out to God and that allow each other to be the body of Christ, to pray with one another. It's going to be available. I would love to see prayer becoming more and more just natural to us as a family of churches, more and more natural like breathing, where we don't see prayer as just a burden on top of everything else, but something that transforms all of our burdens. I stole that quote from Paul Miller's book, A Praying Church. If you don't have it, get it. If you've got to sell your shirt to get it, get it, regardless. But that's what we want to be, a praying people, a praying church. That's how we start to see God in our midst. So I'm going to pray for us as we continue to worship through songs and communion and announcements and everything else. Father, thank you for being our Father, the eternal one. And God, we don't need to be afraid of knowing that you're outside of time, that to you a thousand years are like yesterday, like a couple hours. Because God, we know you're not distant, you're not uncaring, you've shown us those everlasting arms entered into this life. Jesus Christ showed us who you are. He showed us your love. He showed us your compassion. Those arms were extended, welcoming us in, beckoning us to come to you freely. I pray, God, help us if it's the first time or the hundred thousandth time to confess to you or maybe to each other in appropriate times and circumstances, the ways that we fall short, the ways that we reject you, our faithlessness, our greed, our thin-skinnedness, our, our lust, our idolatry, our undervaluing our lives or the lives of those around us. Lord, all the different ways that we need to confess to you and to each other, help us do that. Help us approach you. And God, help us make an impact. Our lives are so short. They're so quick. We're here today and then we're gone. And we affirm, we believe, we say it once again. Our impact comes from you. It's only when we labor in the Lord that it's not in vain. 
So help us do that. Help us not just go through the motions, but to examine our lives. To lift that up to you. To be willing, Lord, to make our lives more and more so reflect people that care about you, that have a vision for the future that you see, that want to make more and better disciples, that want to fill our time in ways that expand the kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.